Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Blood Red podcast. Uh, I'm James Pierce, and I'm delighted to be joined by uh, two very special guests today. One slightly more special than the other. Uh, we've got Andy Kelly, the I, Liverpool FC editor. I take it I'm the not very special one, James. You're not very special, Andy, <laughs> no, no. fair but enough. It's, it's still good to have you. It's still uh, good to have you here. Um, and, and the other one, who is certainly more important, is uh, Paul Dogleash, the... Uh, Clearly, obviously, the the son of the cop icon Kenny, uh, and a, and a man who enjoyed a uh, you know a, a very decent playing career uh, in Newcastle, Norwich, uh, in Scotland, and then huge success in North America, both as a as a player and a coach. Uh, so was, yeah, thanks for joining us, Paul. Hey, listen, for coming back on here. Is that the introduction you get? I, love, <laughs> I like those lies that you tell. It makes you feel good about myself. <laughs> how, how are you? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm really, really good. Um, just taking a break at this moment in time, deciding what's next, and, and then uh, and then kind of going attack it, you know, with, with full force. So just got to be patient and wait for the, the right opportunity to yeah. see what comes up next. And yeah, then, no, obviously, and go for it. your most recent role was with Ottawa Fury, wasn't it? I mean, obviously you parted company with them in August. Was it Was it just time to, to look around for a new challenge? Yeah, no, it was... It was. I had two jobs there. It was the general manager and the the, the head coach as well that they call over here. So they basically had two roles. And um, I went to speak to them and, and said, "Look, I don't think I can do this uh, much longer going forward. It's a little bit too much." And you know, the way the conversation went, they said, "If you're thinking about going at the end of the season, then it's better for us if you go now so that we can plan." So. Um, I thought that was the I thought that was the respectful thing to do, and 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 that's what I did. Paul, the the impression we get this side of the Atlantic is that um, football, obviously soccer over there in in North America, in terms of Canada, where you're speaking to us from now, and and, and America's is really you know it, it's really now part of the national consciousness in a way that maybe it's never been before, and obviously the TV coverage I think is is pretty strong and. Uh, we hear from Liverpool's own chief executive, Peter Murray, obviously worked in America for a long time about you know, yeah. just how big the game is. And uh, it's really taken hold over there now, hasn't it? Yeah, and, and before I answer, I think you're special. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> I, I think you're special. The, the, uh, no, it's, it's, it's like people, are, people keep saying the game, you know, it's, it's, gonna, it's taken off. And, and, but it, it's, it's taken off for a while. Um, I think it's, if you look at where MLS ranks, in terms of average attendance, it's really, really high in, in world in world football. If you look at um, uh, even just in, in North America, the average attendance compared to to, uh, to basketball, I think it's now gone above basketball and hockey. It's only behind baseball and football now, which obviously have much bigger stadiums. So um, some of the you know some of the some of the environments they're getting created now, like Atlanta, which is a new team, Portland, Seattle. I mean, it's, it's European-like atmospheres that, that are getting created. So um, that's the key, really, for me, is is that people are paying to go to watch games. Um, there's more kids pay, uh, sorry, there's more kids play football in, in uh, or soccer, whatever you want to call it, in uh, in America than any other sport. So it's like the, the, the foundations are in place, the, the people are going to the games. The one thing that does need to, to, to improve to really take it to the next level and, and become a uh, a dominant force in, in world football, if you like, is 
the the advertising money and the sponsorship money needs to needs to go up so that you can afford to pay the wages that the, the Premier League can pay because obviously the the TV deals that people that people buy and uh, are based upon the amount of adverts that you can sell during the game. So that's really the next step for for, for American soccer to take is is to try and drum up the interest in, in the commercial side because all the, the the people now the next generation that's going to be in the in the jobs that are in charge of advertising dollars are going to have played soccer growing up yeah. so it, it's going to be I, I do think that the next generation you're going to see even more uh, money put into the game as this generation that's grown up playing soccer gets into the high power jobs do you think Paul that that growth is going to be damaged at all by Obviously, the failure to, to miss out on the World Cup is—is is that a big setback? Yeah, it's a massive setback. But with with adversity can, can come revolution, and and you need a big setback to 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 have a revolution, if you like. And, yeah. and I think that what's going to happen now is there's going to be a full inquest. Um, there's going to be a full inquest into to how things are, are being done in in North America, and and why is the national team not qualifying for the World Cup? Uh, and I think the you know, Bruce Arena came back to try to try and um, qualify for the World Cup, and he stepped down when when he never made it. So that they're already going to put a new head coach in place. Um, and uh, if you actually look at the younger age groups, I think the U17 national team are actually doing really well in the the youth, the youth World Cup. I think they play England. Play England quarter final tomorrow, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it'll be interesting to see. They look really, really good in the last game. So. It's going to, and the English team look awesome as well, coached by a former Liverpool coach, Steve Cooper, and, and Mike Marsh as well. So it's going to be, I'm going to watch that game with great interest because that really is, that really is the future of, of uh, both sides of the pond, is, is that game right there. Great stuff. I, mean, I know obviously you've, you've headed back to Canada this week after uh, spending some time in the UK. I mean, the, the highlight of that stay must have been obviously being at Anfield for the unveiling of the, of the Kenny Dog Leash stand. Must have been a very, very proud occasion for for all the family. Yeah, I turned around uh, to my mum and I said, they spelled Kelly wrong. <laughs> so I, I didn't realise Kelly had done so well on Sky while I've been away and, and on BBC. So, you know, it was, uh, no, it, was a, it was a proud moment for the family. It, it's it's something that, you know, I think it's it's not normal to to hear people say nice things about you until you're dead. You know, well, obviously you can't hear them if you're dead, but it, it's, it, it's, I think it's a class, it's a class move from, from Liverpool to, to, to show their respects to, to somebody while they're still alive to, to appreciate it. And that's something that you can appreciate for years to come and, and not just him, but uh, the whole family. So we're really proud of him. And you know, I'm just glad that, you know, Liverpool chose to, to do it while he could still enjoy it because and then obviously for him to hear people see that say nice things about him and to get honoured by the stadium when he walked out before the Man United game apart from a little section in the corner who uh, <laughs> gave him a different kind of reception it was it was, uh, it was something that will make him happy and as an old man I'm, I'm sure he, it, it's it's uh, one of the proudest moments that he's that he's had Paul you, you were you came along in 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 77 which obviously was you know a big year for for your dad in terms of joining Liverpool and starting the sort of journey probably that 
sort of ended and you know with with the unveiling of the, the stand and obviously it, it keeps going with his role as a director and everything else but but the yeah. uh, i mean i know you'll have been asked a thousand times about it but you know kenny's such a, a figure to all of us liverpool fans but to you he's your dad and, and everything else i yeah. mean what, what what's it what's it what's it like growing up as the son of someone like that someone that famous and that iconic to a whole millions of people throughout the world yeah. did you do you put that entirely aside and he's just your dad and he annoys you some days and other <laughs> days he's good and you know we've all been teenagers and you know sometimes your parents aren't your favorite people when you're a teenager and, and all that sort of stuff and uh, you know what, what was it like being Kenny Douglas's son I suppose I'm asking well the the, the stock answer that I always give people is that I don't know any different because I've never had another dad yeah. and, <laughs> and it's not people normally you know laugh or think but it, it's true you know it, it's hard to it's hard to know what it's like not to have uh, Kenny Dalglish as a dad. You know, it, it was it was just normality to me. As as a young as a young person, you don't really realise you're that different. But it's just it's just uh, as you get older that you start to realise that you've you've got a different responsibility, really. Uh, and it's something that you know, it's something that. You need to get used to, to be honest. Um, if, if you think that, like, if I, for me, it was the standards that I was always set for myself were compared to my dad. So if you think that me, even as a player, as a manager, my success is basically the 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 kind of measuring stick of my success is what my dad achieved, and you know, if you think that that's that's the measuring stick of if that was anybody else's measuring stick of success then it's almost an impossible task to, yeah. to try and emulate so um, the, the pressure that, that comes with it um, can be difficult um, the but there's so what I've got to do is just understand that look it doesn't I can't influence what what other people think uh, or the, the expectations that other people have of me I've just got to do my best you know, I've got to do my best and, and just keep working hard and, and whatever I achieve, I achieve. But it, it it's uh, it being the son of Kenny Dalglish, following in the footsteps, if you like, adds a different set of pressures to the normal or the norm that that coaches or players start off with and, and play under really. So uh, but that's if I was if I couldn't deal with that or I, I couldn't um or I didn't want to deal with that, then I could have chose to go and work in an office. Yeah, <laughs> and football-wise, Paul, I know obviously um, Kenny used to come and watch you when you, you started up in sort of the Sefton teams up at, up in uh, sort yeah. of in Steel Boat Deal way, didn't you? And uh, I think we we did a Blood Red podcast with Don Matteo. He was saying that your dad spotted him while he was on the sideline watching you, I think, play, and uh, I think that happened for a few players that got taken to the academy. What was he like as a sort of when he was watching you play in terms of advice? Would he stay out of it, leave it yeah. to your your manager at the time, or how would he be? Yeah, to be honest with you, I was I dreaded the car journey homes because <laughs> my dad, my dad, like any dad, you know, I think every dad, I don't think it was any different. Every dad thought they were a manager. It just so happened that my dad was a manager when you got in the car on on the way home, and they were they'd always try and give you advice. I think most people that become professional footballers tell you that the dad was the biggest influence in the early parts of the career anyway. 
because those car journey homes and pointing out everything you did, normally wrong in my case. Uh, and, and also at some time, I had to wait till I got home and my mum would tell me what I did wrong because my dad would only tell my mum what I did wrong. But that was, so the, 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 uh, the car journey homes were, were educational, but hard as a kid as well, you know, because you could come off and you could maybe score two or three goals and your, your dad would, would all, and most dads were probably the same, would normally tell you what you could improve on. And, and uh, so it was, uh, it was, like he was, he was very, very involved. He'd, he'd come and sometimes he wouldn't stand on the sideline. Sometimes he'd park his car if he didn't want to be seen, to, if he didn't want to put me under any added pressure. Um, He'd, he'd wait in his car and try and watch it through the windscreen, but he uh, he was a he was a huge supporter of me in the early part of, of my career, and and basically took me to as many games as he could, and, and even before some Liverpool games on a Saturday, he'd come and watch me on a Saturday morning. So you know he was very very supportive and, and uh, you know massive massive influence in the early part of my career. Cool. When when you were on the books at Liverpool, who who would have been in your year group at that time? Uh, David, uh, so they were, well, we, we, there was kind of, like the year below me was Jamie Carragher, Jamie Cassidy, uh, David Thompson, uh, people like uh, Gareth Roberts who went on. Yeah. Uh, in my age group, the, there's not really too many. Phil Brazier was a captain, Eddie Turkington was, I think he was a year younger. They might be actually a year younger as well. But in, in my actual age group, there, there wasn't, um, there wasn't too many. You know, most of the guys that, that were in the year below and then you had people like Phil Charnock and, yeah. and uh, they're a little bit older. Uh, you had Dominic Mathoffs, he was a couple of years older, Robbie Fowler. Um, but in, in my age group, the guys that kind of, trying to think, that they went on to to play professional football, uh, there, wasn't, there, wasn't too, there wasn't too many that, that actually went on to, to play professional Obviously, as a kid growing up, the, the dream was to, to to follow in Kenny's footsteps. I mean, how, how difficult was that when when the time came when you when you moved on from Liverpool? Yeah, well, it was it was always hard to to follow in his footsteps because I felt bigger feet. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it made it very difficult. So, uh, he, but no, it was. Look, my dream was always to to play for Liverpool. My dream now is to work at Liverpool one day if I ever could. You know, that's the that's the ultimate for me is in, in is to is to work at the club that you love and, yeah. and you know it was when uh you know I was I, I was in a squad before I left Liverpool I actually the first year I was at Liverpool I found it very difficult because of the you know the maybe the just the weight of expectation at Liverpool you know it, it's uh, I do believe that playing for Liverpool is probably as hard a place to play. As anywhere in the world, because if you actually look at the expectation at Liverpool compared to the resources, it, it's probably the most far apart of of any team at the the top of English football. Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, so I do think I do think it's a tough one, and 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 I, uh, you know, maybe it was being Kenny Dalglish's son, maybe it was, um, maybe it was you know just getting used to to the level. Because um, there were some great players at, at Liverpool, you know, within the three or four years that, that I was there. If, if you think back now, it, like Michael Owen was coming through, Stephen Gerrard was coming through, Jamie Carragher, um, you know, then just the other side there was 
McManam and Matthew uh, Fowler, you know, Jamie Redknapp was bought at 16. Mark Kennedy was, was there. Danny Murphy was bought as well. So there was Danny Murphy, I think, was my age, or maybe a year younger, but maybe Mark Kennedy as well. But they, they were both brought in. But if, if you think about it, that's a big group of, of young players. And if you think if you think now to maybe a four- or five-year um, period of, of people that are coming through the academy at Liverpool, um, that was really a golden era. For, for Liverpool in yeah. terms of the development, um, so it took me it took me maybe a little bit a little bit of time to get used to the expectations at, at Liverpool in year one, and I, I know by my own admission, I've got no problem admitting it. I, I struggled a little bit in the first year, and then the second year I really started to to find form, started scoring goals, um, and and that was when I got in the first team squad. I never I think I never made it into the eighteen. Uh, I was like the odd man out, I think, but I, I got to I got to go to the I think it was the Moat House at the time and spend the afternoon in the hotel before the night game and, and uh, go into the dressing room before the game. So I experienced the game there at Anfield. Um, Paul, who would have know, been the and, who would have been the big influences on you around the club at that time in terms of coaches and that type of thing? Well, Sammy Lee for sure uh, was the reserve team coach. Uh, so I, I like Steve Highway and, and Julie McCauley were more with the 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 uh, A and the B team. I was with uh, Sammy with the reserves from from the moment I went in. Um, you know, so it, it was really Sammy. But you were always around. I mean, Roy Evans was there as well as the manager. Uh, Ronnie Moran, you know, was you know a massive figure at Liverpool as well. Um, you know, Dougie Livermore. Joe Corrigan, they, they were all there as well, but, but Sammy was really the guy that was in charge of, of us and, and the one that I had the most interaction with. And, and Sammy was Sammy was brilliant, dead energetic every day, dead happy, dead enthusiastic, uh, but set really high standards as well. So I think Sammy deserves a lot of a lot of credit for, for the role that he played in, in progressing the likes of David Thompson, Jamie Carragher, um, Michael kind of, and Stephen really skipped the reserves a little bit. But, the, but definitely for 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 the for the guys around my age that, that came through. And and Paul, the, presumably those those years at Liverpool you had would have come on the back of sort of, you know, even as a younger lad, seeing a lot of Liverpool games and being around a lot of Liverpool games. Yeah. And you know, I guess you would have been what nine or nine or so when you know the double eighty six. Do you can you remember yeah. sort of being a young lad and going to? You know, how would it work? Would your dad take you? Would you go with your mum, or would you go with uh, somebody else? And you know, how you, you know, did he smuggle you on the team coach? Or how did how did that all play out in yeah, terms no. of you seeing Liverpool? Well, there was a guy. So basically, in the league, uh, I didn't really go to to too many away games in the league as as a youngster. But uh, at first, I'd always go with my mum to to the league games at home, um, and then. When I got old enough, I'd get the train from from Southport and go on, uh, go and stand on the cop with, with friends of mine. I'd play my game on the Saturday, go home, watch Saint and Greavesy. Uh, <laughs> I used to have a. There used to be this pate that you used to get from from Sainsbury's that came in a tube, and I used to have that in a sandwich and and uh, the extra thick vegetable soup from Sainsbury's as well. They used to like shake the can and it came out still in the can shape. You're going back here, aren't you? You're, uh, you're feeling this day at the match. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, 
So I'd, I'd then have stand on the top, uh, and then, and then uh, in the FA Cup, there was a guy called Alan Brown who used to take me and, and Stephen Evans, Roy Evans' son, and we used to go to to all the FA Cup games, uh, home and away, uh, and then we'd we'd go to those games. But it was it was uh, a massive, massive part of my childhood was was looking forward to the Liverpool game. Paul, I know when you were over recently, you, you spent some time with Paul Cook, who obviously now is manager at Wigan. Was he one of your one of those, those pals of yours from the, you know the old LFC away trips? Yeah, for sure. We used to go. I played with Cookie at Wigan. We actually roomed together um, at Wigan. He's a massive Liverpool fan. Yeah. Uh, and then Cookie used to have a pub in in uh, in Kirby called the Fantail, and he'd. Uh, he put on buses from the Fantail to go and watch Liverpool away. So when I was playing, if I, if I wasn't playing or Liverpool playing on a Sunday, we uh, we used to go we used to go and watch uh, Liverpool. Or I'd, I'd go sometimes when I could on the on the bus with Cookie. We were actually in uh, we ended up in in Dortmund together as well to watch Alaves, and we ended up in Istanbul together on a bus as well. Uh, and there's a funny story about that actually. We uh, when I don't know if anyone remembers, but when you there was one road in and one road out of Istanbul, oh, yeah, and yeah. those people selling beer oh, on yes. the side of the road. <laughs> well, we loaded. Well, the bus I ended up on with them. I phoned Cookie when I got there, and he says, "Oh, come on our bus." And there was buses all parked outside the stadium, and they'd only went and bought. They didn't understand. They obviously weren't that cultured. They bought sin alcohol lager, so the, <laughs> the, the bus was full with lager without any alcohol in it. So. Uh, that wasn't much fun drinking that before the game, but we, we managed to find some other stuff. But he's a he's a good friend, and he's really really good at what he's doing as well. I was I was very very pleasantly surprised at how good he was and and how much of a how much of a kind of relaxed atmosphere that he creates just by being himself amongst amongst Wigan. And I've got no doubt if he can if he can keep them if he can keep the team healthy that they they've got a a real real big chance of of going up and and uh, getting into the championship by the end of next year. Paul, so you, you, you're this young lad and you're going to see, see the games yeah. and, and, and everything else and, you know, it must be you know, brilliant to, you know, to see your dad down there doing his thing and then, obviously, he decides to step away from the club. You'd have been about 13, 14 uh, yeah. when he announced he was going. It was, you know, I can still remember the, the shock in the city that day as a as a thirteen fourteen year old lad, could could you see it sort of coming in your dad, or did you feel it was, you know, had he mentioned it to the family beforehand, or was it a giant shock to you? And how did you take it with your with your dad leaving? To be honest with you, I don't really remember the build up. You know, like if if I'm honest, I don't remember. I remember the day. I think my dad told us maybe the night before or the morning. I, I don't really I don't really remember, but I remember us being upset that that he was leaving. Um, but we were kept off school that day, and I actually went to play golf with my dad and, I, and, and, and other people just to just to take his mind off it. That was his that was his escapism was to go and play golf. So I went to play golf in that day, uh, and it was hard, you know. He, he needed a break, but I think after you have a break, the boredom kicks in, uh, and he realised fairly quickly that. You know, it, it, it wasn't that he needed to to kind of leave football forever. It was just that he needed he needed a break just to recharge. And and then obviously he came back and had 
unbelievable success with, with Blackburn. I think that, you know, is arguably, you know, in management maybe his best ever achievement. It's overlooked, isn't it, Paul? Because I think people at the time put it down to, oh, you know, Jack Walker was putting yeah. in a few quid, wasn't he? But you know, for someone so intrinsically linked with one club to go to another and, you know, obviously beat a Manchester United team that was going to go on and dominate English football, it was, you know, it, it was a hell of an achievement, wasn't it? Well, money's only one thing. Like, if, if you've got to think, there was other people trying to sign Alan Shearer, Sutton, Tim Flowers, you know, it was, it was, uh, you know, David Bassey. They, these players chose to go to Blackburn for a reason. Yeah. You know, and I think in, I think in Roy Keane's book, you know, Roy Keane chose Man United. So, uh, I mean, he speaks about choosing Man United and I don't think the money was, was too different, you know, but it was, if you, if you, uh, if you actually put things into perspective, I know now, getting people to choose Blackburn Rovers, you know, rather than Liverpool, Man United, Arsenal at the time, is an achievement in itself. And then to, to, to put them together and win a championship against the, against the, the big clubs is a truly, truly remarkable achievement because what, when he won at Liverpool, you know, Liverpool were the best team. They, they were, you know, you almost, as, as fans of back then, we expected to win. Yeah. But yeah. nobody ever expected Blackburn to win the Premier League. No. And obviously after his success there, you know, he ended up with Newcastle and, and, and obviously took you across with him in the end. Yeah, well, the, there was no reserve team at Newcastle. Uh, and they, what had happened was, I Berry came in for me uh, when I was at Liverpool. And I think uh, when they asked what the deal was with Berry, Berry were in the championship at the moment. They wanted to take me on loan and then they wanted to take me on a, a permanent. Uh, and my, my dad said, well, is that the deal for anybody? And... He said, yeah, that's the deal. And he said, well, you know, he, he called me and he said, well, do you want to come here? We, we need to fill, we need to sign young players to, to fill the reserve team. And, you know, I thought to myself, well, um, you know, I, Newcastle was a, an exciting team at the time as well. And uh, I, I thought, yeah, why not? Um, I thought, you know, it crushed me to, to leave Liverpool. But if they were, if there was an opportunity to go to a club like Newcastle, then, I was going to jump at it, he said, but you need to, he said, I, I want you to go on Berry. I want you to go to Berry on loan uh, till the end of the season to to learn to learn about being a pro and, and learn another side of football. And it was one of the most valuable things that I did. I, I, I didn't play that much at, at Berry, but um, what I learned about the other side of football and, and uh, you know, from Stan Turn and, and, and from the experienced players that were there were, were invaluable to me. Were you in Newcastle under, under Hullet as well? Yeah, yeah, Hullet gave me my debut. So after my dad uh, my dad got fired just after I just after I signed. Yeah. For after about just after I'd come back from loan. I think it was only a couple of games into the season. My dad got fired, so I'm now at Newcastle. Um and I'm the son of the former manager. <laughs> and there's a new manager coming. Yeah. And I was training with the first team uh, when I came back and scored a few goals in pre-season. And the first game after my dad got fired, there was Alan Irvine and 
uh, actually he was taking the team. He he put me on the he put me on the bench. Uh, sorry, he put me on the bench for the game. I was meant to be coming on uh, for for Stefan Givash because he was just coming back from an injury, and then <coughs> Huller came came down at half time, and I think he made. He was, he was many watching the game, but he came down at half-time and made a few substitutions, and I, and I never got on. And uh, The next few weeks, I was I was in the reserves, and I went to see him one day, and I said, look, I, said, I was training with the first team when when you came, and, and now I'm playing with the reserves. I think I scored, you know, nine or eight or nine, ten goals or something in the first yeah. the first part of the reserve team season. I said, look, I'm, I'm doing well in the reserves, and, you know, I just want to know if I'm... I'm going to get a chance here. And he said, well, I'll come and watch the reserve game uh, tomorrow night and, and and make sure you do well. And I scored. And, and then he put me in the first team. So it was, it was although my dad signed, it was actually Ruth Hullard that gave me my Premier League debut. And, and obviously from there on to, on, on to Norwich, what, what are your memories of the time there? So Norwich, Norwich was... Uh, at Norwich, I went there... Um, I went there on loan and I really, really enjoyed it just to be playing football again. Obviously, I'd fallen out with a team at Newcastle and I loved going there just playing football again. And then after, so I, I ended up signing on a permanent and I was young and I was, you know, Norwich is a, 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 Norwich is a wonderful club. It, it really is a, a really, really good club and it's a fantastic place to, to live and, and raise a family. But I was a young single lad and, and, uh, I was by myself in in a house down there, and I, I felt I really struggled with uh, you know being away from yeah. from the northwest really uh, at a young age. So um, I got the chance to I got the chance to uh, it affected my football really, and then I got the chance to to come to Wigan, which was which was uh, you know obviously move back and live in Liverpool, and it was uh, you know it was a great move for me at the time. And obviously from from there, obviously moved on to. Obviously, from Wigan to Blackpool, Scunthorpe, and then Linfield, and then Scotland, Livingston, Hibernian. At what stage yeah. in this journey are you starting to think about life beyond playing? And when, at what point did you decide coaching was for you? Well, I'd always wanted to coach. Uh, I was always somebody, you know, and I know it sounds trivial, but when uh, I was playing video games, I'd always play championship manager at the time, and I'd, I'd always thought about going into managing coaching. Um, and so I, I got the opportunity to uh, I got the opportunity to, to do that um, when I when I finished playing uh, I, I finished at Kilmarnock in, in Scotland and and uh, I was I was struggling with with injuries and I I was told that it would take a, a long time of rest to uh, to get over the injuries that I had and. I said to my wife, I, I just I was newly married, and I said to my wife, I said let's let's go back to America, and, and there's a huge uh, youth market over here, and, and I said I'll go back and I'll get a job working in, in youth football in in uh, in Texas, and and then that was the start. I took my badges and and then kind of worked my way up the ladder, and and uh, here I am today. And Paul, you did you did uh, you know, play a bit in in America as well, and. Did you win an MLS Cup over there? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We won it in 06 and 07. I, d- I didn't play as much in in 07, but with with injuries, I, w- I was out for for a long time. Uh, played at the beginning of the season and then just got fit at the end to get on the bench for the final. So uh, 
it was uh, it was it's amazing and it's something that I thoroughly enjoyed. I think it's it's something that I would recommend to to anybody the the experience of uh, learning a new culture and, and playing you know in a different environment. Sometimes we get stuck in the bubble, which is Premier League, uh, and for me to to come outside of the Premier League and get a, an, an English football and get a or British football, if you like it, and get a fresh perspective was was huge. There's there's so many positives that I can that I can that I can name. There's also some some challenges as well. I mean, the travel that you have to do over here uh, and the conditions that you have to play in. Sometimes you play in in August in Houston and it's a it's 100 degrees, or you go to Colorado and you're playing at altitude and it's hard to get your breath. So there's, there's things that you need to deal with. Uh, traveling is a six-hour flight from, I think, from New York to, to LA. So there's there's things in in America that you have to deal with that that you don't have to deal with in Britain. And it was it was a fantastic experience for me to to uh, to come over here and and, uh, and and be part of it. That was that was something Stephen Gerrard mentioned when he went across Paul, wasn't it? That those things you have to get used to that you just don't think about in this country. The as you say the traveling the Humidity at times and uh, and the heat and uh, you know he didn't manage a trophy when he was over there so you've got you've got one up on him anyway. That's the only thing I've got. To <laughs> what a great player, you know. He was what an iconic person he is in the football club. You know he's, you know, I I, I remember seeing Stephen when he was sixteen. We were we were training and the A and the B team were training together at, at Liverpool. And he was, I think he had some injuries when he was young. He was just, he was just coming in and we, we mixed and we played. I was 19, he was 16. And he was just, you know, you could tell straight away at 16 that he was just on a different level. And he was playing balls around corners and getting, giving people a ball to get it back. And, you know, after, you know, over the next kind of little bit of time, he started, he started playing in the reserves and it was one of those where, you're a little bit older, but you always hoped when when the team was getting uh, when the team was getting picked and the squad was getting picked that, that Steven Gerrard was in it for the for the short time he was in the reserves. But he, he, he was he was so good, just like Michael Owen. That they they progressed through the reserves, you know, very very quickly, and I didn't actually spend much time there. Mm-hmm. Paul, I know you keep a close eye on the Reds still. Obviously, I think this weekend Liverpool play in Tottenham. Two years ago, since Klopp's first game was was against Tottenham as well, how, how do you kind of judge the, the progress that he's overseen over the past two years? I, I think, the, for me, I, I went into Liverpool and and, uh, and and watched, you know, watched watched games, watched watched training, and, and you know, when you when you speak with Jurgen, you just know he's the right man for, for Liverpool. Know, the personality he's got, and and to be honest with you, I think you know as a coach sometimes you look at it a little bit differently when you're being a coach than, than you do as a fan. But we've been brilliant at times this season, and just not had the quality in the key moments, whether it's taking a chance or defending our 18-yard box. But if you actually take a step back and, and you analyse more than the results, Liverpool are Liverpool are going in the right direction. Um, and he's the right man for Liverpool, and, and you know I, I just 
I just see a, a wonderful future. You, you've, he's got to have a little bit of luck, you know, with, with taking our chances and, and showing more quality and defending our own box. But you saw in, in the European game that that could have been any of the games yeah. that, that we've dropped points in over the last few weeks. I mean, that, that, the performance wasn't that much different to some of the performances we've put in in the, in the, uh, in the league. The only difference was that we took our chances and we never made mistakes in the box. So if we can build on that, that's two games now, uh, a clean sheet against Man United, who, who, uh, who, you know, before the game, before the round of games that weekend, were only one goal behind Man City uh, in terms of being the top goal scorers in the Premier League. We keep a clean sheet against them. And you can talk about whether Mourinho's tactical ambition doesn't matter. You know, Liverpool restricted them to one big chance rate. And I don't think Man United, uh, which was Lukaku's chance, and I don't think Man United, I'd be interested to know when the last time Man United went 45 minutes of football was half in a short bus. Yeah. So, you, you you know, and then the game, clean sheet again in Europe, and it's hard to travel up to, the, to you know, away in Europe. And after the, the high of the Man United game and raise yourself again, and to score seven goals against anybody is... is and a remarkable achievement. So it's two two real big steps in the right direction. And, and hopefully now uh, Jurgen gets a little bit of luck, he and the players deserve, and, and Liverpool can start motoring up the, the Premier League. Because I mean, it's it's as fun a team to watch as there is in the Premier League. Uh, we we just need to show that little bit more quality in the key moments, and, and uh, hopefully the the last two games will give us the confidence to do. It. Well, you mentioned before about the expectation of being a Liverpool player. Obviously, it's the same for Klopp in the hot seat. When you, when you look at the resources that, that City and, and United and, and Chelsea have got and the, the money they've splashed around in Liverpool, haven't, then they're not competing at the absolute top end in terms of finance. Do you, do you still yeah. think you know, it is realistic to think that Liverpool can win the Premier League title or, or is it or, or is or is that expectation too great when you, yeah. you know, when when the maths dictate that whoever spends the most money will you know obviously occasionally you'll get a you know a, a fairy tale like a Leicester City but you know but more often than not money money wins the day. Leicester's also one of the biggest problems that's ever happened to coaches because yeah. <laughs> now other owners and fans and media look at it and they say oh well it's possible you don't need to spend that money, but it, it, it's an anomaly. It, it really is a, a one-off when things like that happen. Um, you know that we we over we over kind of think it at times when it comes to football. But the most important thing in football is getting good players. You know, getting good players, make them work hard, and keep them happy. You know, and and then we overanalyze tactics, we overanalyze styles, we overanalyze all these different things, but. Ultimately, if you've got the best players, you can play anyway and win. Yeah. Uh, as long as they work hard and they're happy. And, and I think that you know, Klopp certainly demands that the players work hard, and he, he certainly keeps them happy. And you know, I, I quite like Liverpool. Don't have the, the you know the resources of you know, Liverpool have really really good resources, uh, and there's money there to spend if, if they want to spend it. But they they don't have the resources of Chelsea. Man United, Man City. Um, so what we've done in the past is we've signed players, we've signed second and third choice targets um, because we couldn't get the first choice 
target maybe. And then we've not got the money left to buy somebody who we really need. Yeah. So if I take my fan head off and I actually look at the transfer window, yes, everybody knows that it would have been great if we could have got reinforcement at the back, right? But one of the one of the positives I took from it was that although it would have been great, it would have also been a disaster if we'd have spent the money on someone that's just the same as what we've got, yeah. which is what we've done in the past, with, with all due respect. And then not had the money to buy somebody who could make the team better if and when they became available. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm uh, maybe a little bit more patient because I've been involved in the, the other side of football as well, like as a, as a general manager. And, and uh, I understand that, you know, it takes time to put each brick in place, but I think we've, I think we've, uh, we've got a really, really good foundation. Uh, we've got a great manager in charge. We've got money there when the right player becomes available. And, and I also think we've got some good youngsters coming available. So it's, it's a really good time. And, and I think that we should only really bring in players now that undoubtedly make us much better and help us make that next step to, to, to become title challengers. Paul, the, in American sport, of course, there's this, this word parity is, often, is yeah. often brought up, especially in terms of you look at American football where obviously... They try to create this parity through the draft with the last year's yeah. worst team gets the first pick. And uh, does does money dominate? Do you think in 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 America? When I say American football, I mean American soccer. And in, in obviously, from what you've known, for both as a player, a coach, yeah. and as a general manager, is does money still talk? Is it still the um, you know with um, you know Stevie obviously went to LA. No doubt it wasn't you know it wasn't. Uh, cheap to get him, um, do you still get those big teams dominating with, with the checkbook? Well, you, you've got, there's a salary cap in America as well, so yeah. in, in MLS, so basically what they have is they have designated players outside of the salary cap, so like Stephen would have been a designated player, um, and each team's allowed a certain amount of designated players, you're allowed a certain, I think it's two designated players and then a young designated player as well, but you can trade those spots, so say, I only wanted one, but somebody else wanted three. Then you can do a trade to to for somebody's international, somebody's designated player spot. So, um, but the, the little bit of difference is is you, you have two you have, you have two types of designated player in America. You have your your marketing designated player, the world icons, maybe at the end of the careers that help grow the profile of the league and then you have your, your maybe your tier below players who are still at the peak of the career that actually uh, make a huge huge difference on the field the likes of a Giovinco uh, so it, money does talk but uh, as a league that's growing they spend the, they spend the money in some marketing players and, and some some players that make the difference on the field, and I think if you want to be successful, then you've got to get, you've got to have the best players. Uh, and I think if you look at Toronto at, at this moment in time, they went out and, and used the designated player money on on people in the prime of the career, and they're sitting pretty at the, the top of the, uh, the top of the MLS standings. And Paul, you you mentioned obviously you know you have a long term dream to work at Liverpool, but 
you very much see your sort of short to mid-term future being on the other side of the Atlantic, getting back into coaching on that side? Yeah, yeah, I, I would imagine so. I, I've done nothing back home, so it, it's very difficult to, you know, in coaching terms, it's it, it's very difficult to apply for jobs when you've when you've got no experience working in the UK. Uh, so it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, my, my reputation is over here, uh, and with the way the game's grown over here, it would make sense to to stay over here, but you know. It, Never say never. I enjoy being home, and, and uh, if an opportunity did present itself, then I'd certainly consider it. But it, it's it's more likely that I would stay over here. Uh, but even the way I am, I'm, I enjoy. I just enjoy being on the field. Uh, I don't really care whether I'm the head coach or working with a head coach. I just like being on the field and, and uh, you know being involved in football. Really, that's that's what makes me happy. In the long term, would would you would you like to manage in England? Uh, yeah, obviously the, the you know it's the biggest. Whether it's the best league in the world is open to debate, but it's the, certainly the, the biggest. Yeah. Um, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say manage. You know, I, I do think that the pressure of expectation and you know the the stress levels of of being a manager in the Premier League and and the life expectancy in your job. Really, uh, is 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 so sure that as a as a person with a family, yeah, uh, a wife and two kids that I've moved about for the last couple of years, you know, at, at some point you, you've got to decide: is that the life you want, or, or do you want to have some some kind of of base where the kids know where they go to school, you, your wife can, you know, you can make friends that you know that you've got so. It's uh, if I was to come back, it, it you know I'd not necessarily uh, as a head coach, but maybe more as like a, the ideal job would be more like a Ronnie Moran, yeah. where you could you could stay somewhere for for a long period of time and, and be involved uh, in a club for a long period of time rather than losing your job if there's there's uh, there's a couple of bad results on the bounce. Paul, I can't let you go without. Um, as someone who grew up in Irish League, uh, watching Irish League football yeah. myself, I can't let you go without talking a little bit about Linfield. <laughs> and we have a lot of Irish listeners of this podcast as yeah. well. What was your experience of the uh, of the Irish League? I must ask, did you ever get to Corian Showgrounds, my old uh, stumping ground? I never, I never got there. No. But, uh, <laughs> so I, I went over, and, and it was I just uh, I thought I'd retired uh, for a couple of years, and. I just started doing uh, some some agency work and, and just working on a different part of football. I needed some time off football just to just to uh, kind of lost my way a little bit. And I got a call from from Linfield asking if I'd, I'd come over and play um, for them or if I'd be interested. And, they, and they, so I came over and I used to fly over on a Thursday and then train on a Thursday night, uh, stay there Friday, and then. Uh, fly back on a fly back on a Saturday night straight after the game, and there was actually Phil Charnock there at the time, who uh, was at Liverpool, and then a guy called Kenny Irons as well, who played for Tranmere. So we all the three of us used to fly over together, uh, and then I was working. I was only really playing part time, um, but I, I I was they were paying me quite well, and and I wasn't. I found it very difficult to just train for one day. 
uh, and then go and turn up and play a game on a Saturday. I think I scored quite a lot of goals at the beginning in the cup competitions and then got one in the league. And I just went to them and I said, look, I'm, I don't think it's fair for you to be flying me over on a Thursday and paying me these wages um, if I can't commit myself fully to, to being in the shape that I want to be. Uh, so we, we called it a day fairly fairly quickly because I thought that was the, the honourable thing to do. But everybody in that club was, was absolutely magnificent towards me. And, and uh, you know, it was a, a real enjoyable experience. I just didn't think it was it was fair to, to, to be employed by, by a club if I couldn't 100% commit to it. Were you, were you have the alarm set for, for Sunday morning to, to get up over there for this little showdown at Wembley? You don't need an alarm clock when you've got two six-year-olds in the house. <laughs> tell you that for nothing. So, uh, I'll be up. I'll be watching the game for sure, yeah. Uh, can't wait. Highlight of my weekend. Yeah, from a coaching point of view, is it quite a, a fascinating match-up? Because it, it seems like Klopp and Pochettino have got a lot in common in terms of the way they approach the game. Yeah, there'll be different systems. It'll be, you know, I think, uh, I think Jurgen's more all-out attack, whereas Pochettino is a little bit more balanced between the, you know, defending at times and, and getting numbers behind the ball and and, uh, and attacking as well. I think Pochettino's kind of flipped between the change of systems a little bit more than Jurgen as well. I think he's changed between the the three four two one and the four two three one a few times. So yeah. um I, I do think that it will be an interesting tactical match but it's two of the it's two of the best managers in, in the Premier League, isn't it? So yeah. it's uh and two of the best teams. So it's gonna be a great game and, and uh obviously it'd be a bit weird playing a playing a league game at Wembley but uh it's always great when when you when you get to see Liverpool play at Wembley. It certainly is. That's a perfect place to, to finish it, Paul. Uh, really, really appreciate your time. And, um, yeah, thanks ever so much for, for joining us and wish you the best of luck with whatever you, you choose to do next in your coaching career. Thanks, Paul. Thanks very much, Jabs. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, as I said, I think you're special. <laughs> thanks. What you Great thanks, stuff. Paul. Well, Cheers, that, mate. Well, that was your Blood Red podcast. Uh, don't, don't forget to join us early next week. We'll be reflecting on... Uh, what we all hope will be a, a successful day for Liverpool down at Anfield South. Thanks for listening.